I'm Jack Farley, stepping in for Mike. Really happy to have, as always, Mark Yusko, CIO of Morgan Creep Asset Management on uh, the on the margin. Great to have you. Mark, how you doing? Yeah. Jack, thanks for filling in while Mike's off playing in, in Morocco. And, um, you know, we'll, we'll start off the same way. We'll, we'll do the soccer veal. And, you know, Mike hates when I do this. I get up on the desk. I got my Bitcoin Friday pants on. And I am willing the market into a bull market. I got the Bitcoin bull socks on today. Nice. And, uh, we're gonna we're gonna get this thing started. We're still in crypto spring, so it's not gonna be a big bull market, but um, that's where we are. And then I have my I do have the um, keep calm, we'll print more shirt on, so we can talk macro. Oh well, okay, Mark, you're really queuing me up. I mean, I feel like we can we can talk two hours about that shirt. And by the way, I want to give a shout out to your pants. Uh, very seasonal, very autumnal. I actually, you know, I'm a little biased. I have pants of a very similar color myself, and you know, it's just a great time to wear them. You know, it is. And and look, black and orange. It's a little early for Halloween, but it just is what it is. Well, Mark, things are spooky already in markets. We may not be at Halloween yet. I like it, uh, Mark. I want to talk about whether the Bank of England is that is sort of a harbinger for the printing that will come uh, based on your shirt. But because it just came out about 40 minutes ago, let's talk about this labor market report where the unemployment rate actually declined uh, back down to 3.5%. And the whole idea is when you have a softening of labor market conditions, i.e. unemployment goes up, that is essentially disinflationary will bring deflation down. So, you know, Jay Powell is never going to say we want fewer people to be employed, but they do want a softening of labor market conditions. So you know, does this put upward pressure on the Federal Reserve to remain tight? And if so, do you think that's a mistake? What do you think? Oh, wow. I mean, so many important questions. And you know, we talk about this a lot, that answers are cheap, right? Having, having answers or facts, easy. What's really hard is to formulate the important questions. It's one thing I appreciate about you and Mike and 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 the other guys uh, at Blockworks that that do this. It's it's spending the time to actually come up with with the right questions. And so the key question there is: Does this number right? Does this this trend in in jobs give them backup for their current path? Right, this tightening path they've been on. Which I will say, right. I believe this is the third worst policy decision in the last 200 years. Big statement. So, you know, when we were at DAS, uh, again, great Blockworks event, uh, we're at DAS and we're, we're finishing up and, and Mike said, so, you know, you know, guys, I was on the panel with Dan and, and, uh, and Bill, and he said, you know, give me, give me just your thoughts on the next few months. I'm like, well, here's the problem. In 1840, and DTAP turns to me, Dan Tapiero says, Mark, he asked for like a, a summary. and You're going back to 1840? Like, right. no, it, it's really important to understand that the worst policy error that banks, because there was no Fed in 1840. In fact, there was no national bank. They had not renewed the second national bank charter. So we we're in the era of free banking. And basically what happened is we had a guard variety recession. And these banks because they were all issuing their own money and nobody wanted their money to go down in value. And then a whole bunch of stuff was happening in the railroads and, and all this stuff. But bottom line is they all tightened liquidity and turned a garden variety recession into what was the time, the worst depression the young country had ever seen. So fast forward 90 years 
1930. And the second worst policy error made by then the Fed. So the Fed started in 1913, the creature from Jekyll Island. And here's the thing. So the market crashed. And instead of doing what they should have done, Congress, the two dumbest guys in Congress. Now, that's a big statement because it's like an oxymoron, right? Dumb Congress. I mean, I shouldn't say that. But, but Smoot and Hawley, these two guys passed tariffs, right? Deglobalized, de, uh, you know, lowered trade and, you know, terrible decision. But then the Fed raised rates into this recession, which then turned into the Great Depression. So now 90 years later, and why is it always 90 years, Jack? Well, it's because it takes a full generation to forget and get stupid again. So here we are, again, with a downward spiral in global economic activity, right? Populism, nationalism, deglobalization, COVID lockdowns, Russian problems, all this stuff. And what does the Fed do? They tighten? Come on. And it's just one of these things where, okay, what's the, what's the idea? Does he really believe that's what you have to do? So one, one theory is, well, you got to reload the gun, right? You should have reloaded the gun in 2013. You didn't. What I mean by reload the gun, you need to raise rates so you can lower them again. Right. Like, well, and Mark, right, do you think the Fed should have done that maybe uh, a year ago or 18 months ago in early 2021? Oh, for sure. But they should have started in 2013. <laughs> By 2013, QE had us back on track. We were growing. Why did we keep emergency interest rates for 10 years? Well, it's because. Do you borrow at Fed funds? I don't borrow at Fed funds. I don't. No I want to, though. The banks, right? Yeah. So the banks were still in jeopardy. They still had too little capital, too much leverage, and we were recapitalizing the banking system by lending them borrow, lending them money at zero, and letting them invest in treasuries at you know risk free two or three percent. My favorite stat: J.P. Morgan, zero trading days that were negative in the last three to four years. That's not possible. You can't win every day. Well, if you're not taking any risk, you can. Right. So all this goes back to this idea that they should have raised rates, but they didn't. Okay, so now he thinks, well, I got to get the gun reloaded because we're going to have a doozy of a downturn. I'm going to have to cut rates. Right. Like, okay, but here's the problem, Jay. How many interest rate hikes, or Jerome, I'm sorry, Jerome. Jerome the Hawk is back, right? He started as Jerome. He was a hawk, and then Trump beat him down to Jay the dove, you know, plucked all his feathers. Then he became Jay, the letter J with the hoodie, the pusher, like handing out stimmy checks to everybody. The printer After, meme, yeah. Yeah, the printer meme, right? Printer go burr. I mean, he was just Jay the printer. And so then he went back to Jay, J-A-Y, the dove. Well, now he's turned back into Jerome the hawk. And so Jerome is being hawkish. Well, well, why? Well, I think he really does believe he's going to need the bullets. But here's the problem. How many interest rate hikes, Jerome, will it take to fix the zero COVID policy lockdown effects on supply chain? Doesn't matter what you do. That's not going to fix it. How many interest rate hikes are going to change the price of wheat in Ukraine? 
None, zero, not going to happen, not going to help. How many interest rate hikes are going to change the price of gas to Europe? I mean, we could blow up the pipeline. Okay, fine, and probably did that. But his interest rate hikes aren't going to matter. So what is it doing? So there's only two things it could be. One, he's just forgot the stupidity of the previous 90-year cycles, and he's just going to go down in history as the third dumbest. Or it's sinister. So we always talk about sinister Saturday because this comes out on Saturday morning. Yep. And I always say, the sinister view was, well, this is all part of the plan, right? When you are an aging empire, you've replaced capitalism with cronyism. So you got all your friends at the tippy top of the pyramid and you channel all the assets up to those people, right? The average person doesn't own anything, right? They don't own a house because you can't afford to buy a house. They don't own their car, right? The average car payment now is $700. The average loan is creeping up on seven years. You don't own that car, you're renting it. So no one owns anything. So all the ownership is up here. And then what do you do? You basically devalue the currency and make the top people rich and the bottom people poor. Well, what's another way to make people poor? Well, put them in a recession or depression. Okay, so is this intentional? Is like this part of the dictator playbook? Well, here's the funny thing. The dictator playbook goes like this. You do that, you put everything at the top, you crush everything, turn your economy into dog poop, like what they did in, in Venezuela, right? Technical Shut term, as an economic term, dog poop, yeah. Yeah, dog poop, yeah. Um, and, and then what do you do, right? You get super rich, the masses get poor, but then I always wondered, how do these people stay in power? Oh, you give people free stuff. If you're in Argentina, you give them free electricity. If you're in Venezuela, you give them f literally free money. Here, what are we doing? Forgiving student debt. Now we just yesterday, Gavin Newsom saying, hey, we're sending you a thousand dollar check. That is to buy votes. That's what that is. Yes. And so the whole thing is, is freaky to me. Anyway, it's a long answer. That, that's a great answer. You, you've given me a lot to work with, Mark. I think part of the reason why the 1929-1930 Federal Reserve decision to hike interest rates was so disastrous was it's not as if they plunged the global economy into a recession in order to tame inflation. Inflation was basically zero in 1929. Right. So they had, they, you didn't right. even have an excuse. So, so you know, now that inflation, you know, was it 9%, uh, 8.5%, we, we can all agree it's high, and it, you're absolutely right that a lot of it is supply-side driven, i.e. not interest rate sensitive. So the price of natural gas is not necessarily going to respond, you know, even if the Fed fund rate goes to 10%. But yeah. doesn't the Federal Reserve have to go through the motions? And, you know, I mean, you've seen that chart. It's, it's an easy chart to make of spot inflation, so 8.5%, and spot Fed funds, which is 3%. You know, you're still inflation is still twice as high, almost three times as high as 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 uh, ah, rate. So ah, on on a see. just looking at that simple chart, it looks like you know money is almost you know the inflation is is being deflated away Such. almost twice as fast as the price of money. Such an important point. Such an important point. But here's the problem: measurement numbers, government numbers are a sham. I mean, they're a total sham, right? CPI has been a sham for. Three decades. You go to this guy, shadowstats.com, and you look at how he does CPI based on the, the actual calculation, how it used to be. So they, they move things around. So we had the Volcker problem, right, where CPI was double counting inflation. 
So everyone says Volcker was such a genius. No, Volcker actually caused the problem that then he fixed. It's like the arsonist calling the fire department. How, how did he cause the problem? By making real estate more expensive from mortgage rates? Yeah, or, well, or? What happened is the, the CPI was counting housing prices in the thing. So as, in, 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 the, in the measurement, and it was counting interest rates. So as he raised interest rates, he raised the, 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 the actual CPI, which then he saw, which then compounded the price increases of stuff, which then went back into CPI. And so you had this, this um, feedback mechanism that made it go all the way to 21% before you know, it choked up because it happened really fast because of bad counting. And so, so then, quote unquote, he breaks the back of inflation. Okay, whatever. Inflation happens when there's too many young people in an economy. That's when inflation happens, right? When you have a lot of 25 to 45-year-olds, you get inflation. Look around the world where there's high inflation. You'll find a lot of 25 to 45-year-olds. Now, why is that? It's because 25 to 45-year-olds, as nice as they are, are not really very productive, right? They're learning their jobs and, you know, some are really, you know, entrepreneurial or whatever, but on average, they're learning how to work and prices and companies borrow from their customers in the form of higher prices for, you know, training those workers. And they like to, you know, they buy houses, whereas some, the average, you know, 70 year old is not buying a new home and buying, you know, a baby crib, for example. Yeah, yeah. And to your point, the, the flip side is the average 65 to 85 year old not productive at all, perfectly nice people. And the problem with the US, Europe, and Japan, the reason we're in deflation, the reason we have you know, very low uh, interest rates, very low inflation, which we'll come back to, actual inflation, um, is that those people don't buy anything, right? They don't spend a lot of money. They save money. They buy bonds. And so it's when you're 45 to 65 that things are rocking. And you get disinflation and you get fast growth. And so what was happening in the 70s is the baby boomers were coming of age. And then it wasn't until the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s when we had our boom period because demographically it was good. So if you look around the world, Japan is 11 years ahead of us. Europe's nine years ahead of us. Uh, I'm sorry, two years ahead of us, nine years behind Japan. We're 11 years behind Japan. So whatever happened in Japan is going to happen 11 years later in the United States. So if you look at the peak in the market, in Japan, 1989, 11 years later, 2000, we had a market crash, market peak, you know, the, the, the tech bubble. Same thing happens when de- debt downgrade, 11 years later, US debt gets downgraded. So my point here is that CPI is mismeasured because in CPI, you have something called owner's equivalent, rent, right. which is the rent you charge yourself to rent your house from yourself, which you would never raise. Right, well, right. Housing prices, right? I'm sitting in this house in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, which Zillow tells me went up 40%. In the last 12 months. Nope. Nope. Did my house grow? Did my house get more productive? Did it get more efficient? No, it actually wore out. I had to put money into it. But what happened? It didn't go up. The currency I priced it in went down. And that's my my subtle thing about inflation versus money devaluation. Right. right. Oh, okay. So Mark, let me inflation. explain that for, for the, the audience. It's, it's a uh, like it's kind of high level point. So yeah, in the 1980s, if your house went up in value, some part percentage of that would actually be captured in the CPI report. But the way that uh, consumer price um, uh, inflation was measured 
uh, has changed. And now it's like, oh, that's an asset. Like, you know, Mark, if you own uh, Tesla, which I know is one of your favorite stocks, you know, you, t- Ooh, you own favorite. Tesla, it went from $100 to $1,000. You are wealthier, but uh, that's not the same thing. That's an asset. It's not the same thing as if, you know, the, the food went up uh, 900%, Ooh. right? So th- they're saying, let's actually talk about shelter as a cost, rent. So, you know, um, shelter is about a third of, of CPI. Some fraction of that is rent, which is what people who yep. don't own homes and who rent pay. Uh, but then there's owner equivalent rent, which is a pre- OER, you mentioned it, it's a pretty uh, abstract, let's put it that way, concept, which is you go around, you ask people, how much do you think you would be able to rent this out? And uh, you know, Jeffrey Gunlock has made the point that's kind of a silly point because you know, even real estate experts, people who work in real estate, they they don't know how much you can rent their house. It's it's entirely hypothetical. You'd have to, you know, you have to go block by block and and take a survey of thousands of people and yeah. actually see if you, you can put it put it on the market. And then there's a counting issue of they put people into six different groups, so it's always delayed. So yeah, o, so OER. So I agree that you know, it's my opinion that I agree with you that um, CPI is flawed to the downside. But if it's flawed to the downside, isn't inflation actually higher than 8%? Ah, yes. Excellent point again. But here's here's my argument. That all of the increase, I will argue, over the past 12 months. And remember, CPI is a lagging indicator. It's like the it's like the proverbial pig in the python. It just takes mm-hmm. a long time to get through. And so, basically what happened is we make the dumbest policy decisions in the history of mankind. Big statement, hyper, you know, I'm prone to hyperbole, but this is, I believe this, right? Is this the too lockdowns. loose in 2021 or too tight in 2022? No, the lockdowns. Okay, yeah. Policy. So not course, economic sure. policy, sure, not, yeah. not Fed policy. The lockdowns. Okay, to, to, to take a flu virus and to lock people in their apartments and shut down the global supply chain will go down in history as the dumbest decision in the history of decisions, right? I, I mean, I feel like I'm at Capital One commercial. Yeah. Um, just a bad, bad, bad decision. So, but that said, what did it do? Well, it caused a massive disruption in oil. Oil went to negative prices in April of 2020. Negative $39, okay? So then it got back to zero and then it got back to like 40 and stabilized at 40, mm-hmm. okay? Then it goes to 120, well, how did that happen? Well, Saudi, during the crisis, sent tankers full of oil to Houston, to the ship channel, and filled up all the storage so no one could take their oil from West Texas and put it in storage. So literally drowning in oil, yeah. they have nowhere to put it. They have to pay people to take it away. The price so of storage was more expensive than the oil itself. So net-net, it's, it's physical oil is negative. It was negative. Exactly. Yeah. So then what did Saudi do? They went out and bought. So what happened? All the prices of oil companies went down 75, 85, 90%. And Saudi, which has a lot of money in the sovereign wealth fund, went out and bought them. Genius. I mean, mad genius. Manipulation markets? Yes. Illegal? I guess not. But they did that. So then what do they do? I'm like, huh. Well, now I'm going to cut supply. Oil will soar, right? Because we're going to unlock people and they'll have some more demand. And we're going to control it. And... Oil tripled. And then what happened? Well, because of the lockdowns, you couldn't get stuff, mostly cars or chips. And so used car prices went crazy. I mean, literally, used cars were selling for more than new cars. And we had this weird anomaly that if you take those two numbers, it's 75, 80% of the CPI delta. 
Well, both yes. of those are now going to go away, yes. literally going to go back to zero. In fact, might even go negative. I will, I've made the argument that by the election, so we only got four weeks left, I said oil would be 60 bucks and gas would be sub $3 because it's the only chance the Democrats have to, to win anything. I mean, otherwise, they're just going to get absolutely trashed. But I think Saudi is fighting them. Right, I mean, they so are, and uh, Mark, I, I can I can help you out there. So this is the, today's New York Times. Biden to uh, Saudis and Russia agree to oil cuts in jab at the West. Uh, Saudi and Russia, OPEC Plus, agreed on Wednesday to their first production cut in more than two years in a bid to raise prices. A cut of two million barrels. Quote: The White House, the White House was not happy. And this is a quote: The president is disappointed by the short-sighted decision by OPEC Plus to cut production quotas while the global economy is dealing with the continued negative impact of Putin's invasion of Ukraine. Yeah. So, uh, what? What? But you know, that's two percent of the global supply that's going to be yeah. offline. And yes, the the current uh, production is not at the quotas now, so it's going to be less. But uh, so even does this change your outlook? This this production cut it of sixty dollars oil? It does. It does. Okay. And, and yeah. I. It absolutely does. And here's the thing. Um, you know, I, I, I'm heading to Vegas on Sunday for a big Web3 thing. And I, I tell the story that my wife's only seen me speak one time. She came to Vegas for a conference a couple of years ago. And at the end, I mean, she was in the back with, with actually my son. And, and she comes up, she says, Mark, you can't say things like that. I'm like, what? What I say? She says, no, no, you, you say everything so forcefully. So well, what's wrong with that? She says, well, people will believe you. Well, that's the whole idea. She says, well, what if you're wrong? I said, I'm wrong all the time. I just changed my mind. Yeah. I mean, this idea, I hate when people troll on Twitter. They're like, oh, yeah. four years ago, you said, I'm like, dude, I have changed my mind 11 times in four yeah. years. It's okay. When the facts change, I changed my mind. But you, I mean, that's so, 11 times isn't that many. Like, if you asked me a year ago, like, are bonds a good investment, you know, with the 10 year at 1%, yeah. I probably said no. But now, you know, two year treasury yields are getting 4.2%. You know, Ray Dalio was saying cash isn't trash. I kind of agree with him. I don't know. Absolutely. Long bonds in particular, right? Yeah. Because again, I think deflation is coming. If, and we'll come back to the, to the jobs number. If you look at working age population growth, it is trending to zero, right? We're not, re, we're not replacing ourselves. Our birth rate is sub 2.1. So we're not replacing ourselves. So we have negative demographics. Every day, 10,000 people turn 65 and they retire. According to the according to BLS, now this is this is the part about the jobs number that's so stupid, right? Every day, ten thousand people turn sixty five, and they take them out of the labor force. Have you been to a Walmart? Most yeah. of the people in there that are working are over sixty five. Not not everybody, but I mean that's that's just a dumb rule. And the idea that that is literally a rule is the, it's again the second dumbest BLS rule. The other thing goes to this idea of the birth death ratio, and this just pisses me off because it's about 70 odd percent, whatever the number is, 73, 75, doesn't really matter. 70 some odd percent of the jobs that were created this year are fake. You're talking about jolts, like the job openings. You think they're... Well, no, no, no. The actual jobs that they report that the BS, because here's what they do. Oh. They don't actually count the jobs. I'm like, well, why not? I mean, we we actually have electronic means to do that. In fact, we, we have Taxes, payroll taxes. So we, we could tell exactly how many jobs. Well, we couldn't tell the underground jobs, you know, cash payment jobs, like, right. like my barber and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. But okay, but but we should be able to count it. Oh, no, 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 no. We use a methodology that goes something like this. We are X months into an expansion. Well, 
actually the expansion's over. We're in a recession, but they it's, I mean, that's palpably true. Like the you know, PMI is a PMI below 50 means contraction. PMI has exactly. been below 50 for months. Yeah, exactly. And so, but because we haven't called it, we're in an expansion. And therefore, this many months of expansion, this many companies form, this many companies die, birth, death. Therefore, uh, this many jobs are created. Oh, I didn't. I didn't know that. Oh, no, no. Jack, This you got to dig into this. Dig into it. the birth death ratio. It is the the dumbest way to calculate. Again, in, a, in an age where we can, we have satellite images of me walking out to get the paper. I, I can't walk out to get the paper anymore. But um, I mean, walk out with the dog. I mean, we know exactly what's happening, but we refuse to acknowledge it because we want the numbers to be a certain way. So they want cover to continue to raise rates. So you just manufacture a, a higher jobs number. But the reality is every company I know, including my own, right? And I don't like to admit this, but we are having to do a little kind of fine tuning, shall we say. Right. Um, not mass layoffs or anything, but but it's real. A lot of companies are. You see you know, headlines from Facebook saying there will be a smaller company by the end of this year than at the beginning of this year. Yeah. Hiring freeze, same thing. You know, we're in that same camp. And... It's just the world is is changed. So so there's there's that part of it. And then there's the jolts thing. Yeah. And the jolts thing just, it just pisses me off. That's the number of job openings. Yeah. Because yeah. in the old days, a job opening was an ad in a newspaper. And there was one newspaper and you you did one ad. Well, now in remote work and digital, I got a job opening. I put it in 50 different states and they count them as job openings. Like right. I, I think that's such a good point, Mark. And it took me a while to really just understand how like significant that is because back in the day to have a job opening, you have to pay the newspaper. It really cost you, you know, a yes. marginal amount of money. Whereas now it's just like you go to indeed.com and you know what you get one, you pay one penny per view. Look, if that, I, so it's I'm just learning how to use LinkedIn. Me too. <laughs> just just learning and every day it pops up and i don't even know how to get rid of it want to advertise a free job and we want to advertise yeah. a job for free i'm like no i want to figure out how i connect with the people who want to connect with me i haven't even figured out that button yet so which again just show my boomerism and and tech but well you have an excuse i'm you know i'm young i i don't i'm figuring out linkedin too it's tough yeah but it's I don't know. It's it's we're so we're in this funny funky place that it's it's a probability distribution. You know, Soros right. says that you should never think about markets as absolutes. That you can know what's going to going to happen because that's silly, right? It's folly. So you should think about probability distributions and scenarios. He likes to call it scenarios. So let's do the scenarios. So a month from now, the Fed is either going to do what they say they were going to do, 75 basis points. Okay. I'm going to give that a medium grade probability. Okay. 100 basis points. He does more. I'm going to give that a really small. Not I, would zero. Agree, I would agree with you. Yeah. yeah. But not zero, but, but really low. He's going to do 50. I'm going to say that's probably equivalent to the 75, probably. 25. Not 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 zero, but but low. It's gonna cut. Who? 
on, I mean, yeah, close to zero. Yeah, I mean, yeah, nothing's ever zero. Yeah. Not zero, but 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 as close to zero as you. So that's a probability distribution. Now we got a probability weighted. Is it you know zero? Is it two percent? Point one percent? You know, thirty percent, forty percent. Right. Okay. Now we can do that. Now we can say, okay, what's going to happen? And this is where I talk about the the face melter. I've been talking about this lately. The face melter rally. And we got a hint to that on Monday, Tuesday, which we is. Did. If if he positively surprises, meaning raises by less, or by doesn't raise at all, yeah, I mean the short covering rally will be a screamer, and I think that's part of the plan, right? Which is if you can't fix the economics, right, you're not going to change the fact that earnings this quarter and next quarter and probably first quarter next year are going to, technical terms, suck. I mean, AMD announced last night it was not good. And, you know, Mike, I love Microsoft. I don't know if you remember this. Microsoft, in, in, uh, when they announced first quarter, no, second quarter earnings uh, in the summer, they're like, yeah, we were flat, but by fourth quarter, we're going to be back to 12%. And the market took, I mean, the, the, the yeah. stock took off like 5%. I'm like, are you kidding me? You can't. I mean, that is stock manipulation. That is a false statement. There is zero chance that Microsoft sales in a world where AMD tells us that PC unit sales are falling, that you're going to go back to 12% growth. And I, 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 but no one calls people out on this. And then the other thing that drives me, this is this again, personal pet peeve. I call it the high jump champion thing. Okay. You walk up to the high jump bar. Right. Take the bar off the rack. You put it on the ground. Oh my God. Yeah. Jump over it and you claim you're the high jump champion. Right. So what happens is a year ago, <laughs> company A, what what pick a company, said, I'm gonna make a dollar, Jack. I'm gonna make a dollar this quarter. Six months ago, they're like, Well, I'm gonna make 50 cents. Last week, they said, you know, I'm gonna make a dime. And then they report eleven cents. And everybody's like, Oh, it's a beat. Yeah, exactly. Are you but, Mark, Mark, my um my electric vehicle company deliveries are up 100% year over year. Last year, I delivered one electric vehicle, and this year, I delivered two. Can you, you want to invest? Let's, let's do a deal. <laughs> that sounds like Rivian. Yeah. There's one, I think there's one Rivian truck in the whole country, and it's, it's here in Chapel Hill, and I see it every now and then. He drives like really slowly. I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Yeah, Mark, and- I, I want to ask you about, about earnings, but just because you said Rivian, I got to... Um, pull up this chart. I think it was actually Michael Burry on Twitter who deletes his tweets almost immediately after he posts them. But he said there were many, many companies that had uh, huge market caps over $10 billion with negative EBITDA earnings or even EBITDA below a million dollars. So companies like uh, Snowflake, Uber. I said Snoober because I read Snowflake and Uber. (laughs) Snowflake, Uber, Shopify, uh, Square Rivian, uh, companies like like these... You know those companies, sort of uh, pro- unprofitable technology companies, growth stocks, richly valued companies. Those companies, as you know, have been the companies that have sold off the most this year. Do you think that will yep. continue? Like, despite the fact that they're down fifty percent, they're still overvalued. Or what? What do you see? Uh, look, I now <laughs> this is tough for me because um, if my son's actually watching, he's gonna be mad at me because he works for Snowflake, and you know, so I I want nothing but the best for my son. Um, Thankfully, he sold a bunch of of his shares, um, but not all. And um, but look, I mean, Snowflake is a great company. 
Don't yeah. get me wrong. It is a world changing company. hundred percent. I mean, they have one competitor that, that's tough, but, but they are a world changing company and every business in the world will use their structure of separating data and, and compute. Yeah. So, okay. But that doesn't change the fact that you can't sell for a hundred times revenues. Not profit, not revenue. You, you just can't revenues. Yeah, yeah, not profit. For, forget profit because they don't have any profit. But you can't, you can't sell. Now they, they did come down, Jack. I mean, they were at two hundred and twenty times revenues. Now they're, I think they're only at like seventy-five. Yeah. So they're a bargain. And this is the cream that makes me crazy. People say, "Oh, Shopify, it's a bargain." Yeah. It's only selling at six times revenues. I'm like, are you kidding me? There are no companies in history that stay at six times revenues or 10 times or 75 times. Especially if they don't make right. money. Like, you know, Visa, they well, have a high, high, high price of sales because it's just such a good business. And if there's inflation, that's automatically counts into their profits, whatever. But, you know, a company that's selling at one tenth of revenues, it can be, a, it can, that's not going to be worth zero if it's not making money and the stock's bankrupt. You know, it's, it's, Look, I, the whole point of equity, yeah. Right? Let's, this is, you know, again, I'm gonna make the Tesla bulls mad. That's my job. Is Tesla owes more than they could ever create in dollars? Right? Their debt exceeds their assets. Okay, so technically, their equity is worthless. Right. Oh, no, um, no, no, no. I, I mean, I, I can look it up, but it uh, exceeds their liquid assets. I mean, because there's lots of like goodwill and we own plant, but in terms of cash in the bank, I believe you. I, I, yeah, yeah. No, no, but, but my point is that the, what you could turn into liquid assets. Sure, like, sure. I'm no Tesla bull, by the way, but yeah. Selling the goodwill is a little little challenging, but but here's the thing. And I stand by the statement. They will never make money selling cars. Not ever. Right, they, they'll sell their carbon credits and and other stuff because he pays a lot of money to Congress to to get that allowed. But but we'll never make money selling cars. And here's the thing that I'm struggling with: if demand for EVs, I think he said the other day that China EV demand is is off. I can't remember the term he used, but said you know unlimited. If that were true, then why are all the EV stocks, particularly the Chinese ones, going down so much? Very true. And China I, I, is going to be much more friendly to its own. I mean, look what China did to Google. You know, there's no Google in China. They use Baidu. Um, and Tesla, I think, you know, Elon Musk has played very nice with the Chinese leadership and they've been treated nicely. But so I want to ask you about, so China, you know, you, you know this, when um, you ask what's the best time to invest in risk assets, frequently it's at the time when people are panicking the most and the economy oh, yeah. is the deepest into recession. So for example, March of 2009, fantastic time to buy stocks. That was when everyone was crazy. People in China, you know, the stock market's really down. Yep. Um, the economy suffered, you know, it's, it's worst uh, economic growth number, a negative number. I think it, for the, yep. since the last time, literally since Chairman Mao in the 1970s. Uh, is, is this a good time to buy, you know, Alibaba? I guess the, the, there's a lot of ETFs that have China. Like a contrarian. I K-Web, hand over fist. Okay, I okay. own it. Full disclosure. Look, you're exactly right. The greatest time to invest, period, and, and it's exaggeratedly so in emerging markets, is when things go from truly awful to merely bad. <laughs> right? That yeah. is bar none the best time to invest. But it's the hardest. And in order to do it, you need three things. You need conviction. 
Okay. And conviction comes from work, doing the work in advance. You need courage. That's just intestinal fortitude to, to have a discipline. And you need cash. Having all three at the right time is hard, right? There aren't that many people who are willing to sit on cash yeah. and wait for that fat pitch. You know, Buffett says you don't have to swing. True. Right. And because, because the people you know, with yeah. the most intestinal fortitude had already bought the stuff with their cash. So they don't have any cash at the bottom. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's that, you know, it's funny you say that. So I have this, I don't call him a buddy, right? But, you know, we're friendly and we actually invested. So Mike Alfred and Mike's all over Twitter. And, um, and so you know, he was very bullish on, and again, Mike, I'm not, I'm not criticizing at all because I, I agree with you. He was very bullish on, on the miners, the, the Bitcoin miners. Yeah, right, right, right. And, and he bought them and he was very loud about it. And again, I like loud. I'm not, again, that's not a criticism. I'm loud. Loud's not um, bad. Yeah. Loud is good. And, and he's very loud about it. And then they went down and somebody said, what, what do you think? He's like, I'm all in. And then they went down again. And, he, and someone said, so now what? He says, well, I'm all in. He said, well, you were all in last time. What do you do? Where'd you get the money? And I think that is part of the challenge is any of us who, who invest, right? We have to balance a couple things. One, we have to balance rebalancing. Right? Yes. Should you sell your winners and, and buy your, your losers? Okay. Rebalancing is good on some periodic basis. But it, more interestingly, what you really want to do is cut your losers fast and buy more of what's working. So do more of what's working, right? That, that's actually the key. You know, Julian Robertson, God rest his soul, you know, just passed away a month ago, one of my mentors and just maybe the greatest investor of all time. And what I mean by that is not only was he a great investor in stuff, I mean, his long-term compound returns are off the charts. But his investment acumen at identifying talent, training talent, and backing talent, no one even close. There's no one in the same zip code. And so he, I, had, I would always ask people who were trained by him, you know, what made Julian so special? He said two things. One, he always said, okay, live to fight another day. You're not right. The market's right. So when it's going against you, just get out of the way. Just live to fight another day. Go find another good idea. You got lots of good ideas. You're supposed to have lots of good ideas. And the, the second is they said he had an uncanny ability to double up. Mm -hmm. When something was working, he would press the accelerator. Because most people- And buy more. Do, yeah. Yeah, buy more. Yeah. And what Peter Lynch would talk about is most people do the opposite. Like to, to invest well, you're supposed to pull your weeds and let your flowers grow. Right. You know, plant lots of flowers, but let them grow. Most people pull their flowers. As soon as you're up 10%, oh, I don't want to lose it. And then when something goes down, they're like, oh, I have to buy more because I'm right. Yeah. Maybe you're not right. So, so like now, in 2010, if, if I bought, you know, my portfolio was 50% Intel or let's say 50% IBM and 50% Amazon, as Amazon went up and IBM floundered, the right thing to do is sell IBM and buy more Amazon. But actually, what most people do, and what I do, is uh, you sell the Amazon and to buy more IBM. Yeah, yeah, I'm guilty. And look, we all know concentration makes you rich, and diversification keeps you rich. So it depends: are you in the get rich business, right? If you're young, you should be taking more risk, not less. Right? You should be embracing uh, yes. volatility. You should be building bets in new tech. Uh, like I always say all the time: if you're under sixty-five. It should be against the law to own bonds. Right? You shouldn't own bonds, particularly under 45. I mean, literally, if, if you have 401k, 
zero in bonds until you're 65, 70. Mm-hmm. Just, just zero. You should have it all in high growth, innovative stuff. So, but I guess the, the, the last thing that I think is interesting and <laughs> on China. So there was a, an analyst that had worked for him and he sent him over to, to, to China to, to do a bunch of research. And he went over and he met all these companies, spent two weeks, met all those companies, came back and he had a list of 13. And Julian calls him in and says, okay, what do you got? And uh, he, he hands him the list and Julian's looking at it and he starts talking and, uh, you know, pitching his, his best idea of the 13. And uh, Julian says, you know, we're good. And he hits the, the speed dial and says, buy them. And the guy's like, well, I didn't make my pitch yet. He says, no, this, this is good. 13, I'll buy them all. And then the ones that go up, I'm going to buy more. Yeah. I'm like, genius, right? You had the great analyst go do the work to narrow the funnel to this is. And so the question is, should I buy Baba? Should I buy Tencent? Should I, no, buy K-Web because it owns, you know, the top 10 or 15 or 20. And then the stuff that goes up, buy more. So that's what I would do with China. Hmm. That makes sense. Uh, what? So your shirts? Do you want to show the show the uh, audience your, your shirt again? Keep, keep calm, calm and keep we'll calm print and more and print more. The Bank of England last week uh, bailed out the British pension system, which was levered long long duration bonds. You know, uh, um. You, Mark, you worked with Julian Robinson. You have a lot of experience in the hedge fund business, which is you know basically about making as much money as possible. But then you also have experience working uh, you know with endowments, which is more about like long term planning. And that is definitely yep. where those pension, these British pension funds in particular, are there uh, doing something called liability driven investment, where they're like, we have all these boomers who we have to pay pensions to. Basically, the boomers we're short bonds, we're short the bonds, so we should be long bonds to match that thing. The problem is yep. yields are so low, so they have to do all sorts of swaps and and sort of wild things or things that are safe when interest rates are non-volatile, but when interest rates are volatile, the Bank of England has to step in. What are your thoughts there? And then also, you know, is this a harbinger for, for what's something to come uh, with other central banks? Look, they all got sold a bill of goods, first by Ray Dalio et al., you know, risk parity. And, and look, when rates are falling, risk parity is awesome. Levering long bonds into falling interest rates, awesome. But to your point, as interest rates go lower and lower, that starts to break down. It's kind of like the Fed model, right? Everybody says the Fed model. As long as when interest rates are low, you should have a higher PE and you should have more equities. I'm like, well, yeah, that, that's fine to about 2%. Below 2%, the reason interest rates are low is because economic growth sucks. And so equities are going to do worse. So you shouldn't be levering up into that. But, but that said... When you get to that lower bound, the whole model breaks down. So first they were sold the bill of goods by Bridgewater et al. And, and it was awesome. And look, Ray's a multi-billionaire and I'm not. So let, let's, I, I'm not criticizing, again, I'm not criticizing Ray Dalio. Genius, mad genius. But the problem was as rates went down, the trade wasn't working as well. And so what do you do? I'm an enterprising investment bank. I have a solution for you, Jack. Here's what you do. You lever. And we will provide that leverage through derivatives. No fee to you, no cost to you. And we'll take 4% out of this top, but, but you won't see it. Um, and they sold these things. And, you know, it, it's, it's like the, the option writing 
you know, call, put writing strategies that, that all these people do. Look, being short volatility when volatility is going down, engineered by the Fed, awesome, awesome. But it can work against you and it happens fast, right? My hashtag risk happens fast. And that's what happened. So I, I, I put a tweet out um, right before they made the announcement of, of the bailout. I think it was on Friday. Uh, breaking, you know, all caps, everything, dot, dot, dot. <laughs> and literally everything was breaking. And, and then they called the emergency meeting because it was an emergency. I mean, literally it was an emergency. And to your point, the Bank of England basically said, yeah, this is a problem. If all of our pensions are defunct, literally, technically bankrupt, um, that would be a problem. So let's fix it. And so now you got this massive gaping alligator jaws um, between the uh, the UK rates and um, GDP. And so you got this problem. And look, the lenders of last resort are called lenders of last resort for a reason. So I, I get it. Everyone thinks, right? The cult of Kelton has convinced everyone that you can borrow endlessly. The problem is the UK isn't the world's reserve currency anymore. So the Bank of England can't do this. So they must be getting help from the Fed because the Fed actually thinks they can do this. Right, because if, if the, you know, the, the British bond market, it is, um, they are a sovereign currency. They can print as many pounds as they want, but those pounds will be devalued to dollars because there's more pounds. So, yeah. Exactly. And that's why. And that's exactly right? what happened, yeah. In 1913, you know, the pound was five, and now it's sub one, and that's exactly what's happening. So, yeah. look, unfortunately, I have to jump to another um, thing. I apologize for being late. Uh, this this is great fun, and you know I I don't think we'll we'll push Mike to the side. Although you and I are having some fun here, yeah, but, we are having uh, some fun. You know, Mike, you know he may uh, he may stay on vacation. Who knows? Yeah, um, you know, he may stay in Morocco. That he may not he might not be allowed back in. Right? He may you know stay yeah. in the desert. Mark, so. it's been a total pleasure. Um, people uh, should should follow you on Twitter at uh, Mark Yusko. You have one minute, and the one minute we have left, how bad do you think this earnings uh, quarter that's about to come up will be? Yeah. I, look, my personal opinion, I, I think it's going to be very bad. I mean, I really do. Um, will there be a lot of beats? Yes. Uh, will that cause a lot of short squeezes? Yes. So you have to be careful. But I, I think it's actually going to be really bad. I mean, like bad, bad. Like I think the airlines are going to be super bad. The cruise lines, super bad. Hotels, super bad. Um, what about banks? You know, the, chips, the chips. Oh, the banks. The banks might eke out some okayness because in crises, the volume of trading goes up and they take a spread. So, you know, they may have skimmed enough off those derivatives to, to be okay, but I, I could see them getting hurt too with the, with the rise in rates. So I think hold on to your, your hats. You know, I, I, look, I think it's October, right? The bull market socks for, for crypto mm-hmm. uh, and the orange pants. I think it's October. For for digital assets, I think it's spooky. Back to your original term for equity markets. Final question: Is cash? Do you agree with Ray Dalio? Is cash no longer trash? I never think cash is trash. I mean, I I know his point, right? Which is after inflation, it's bad. But cash is an option, right? Right. 
And I like options. I like the ability to buy stuff when it goes on sale. Investing, only business. When things go on sale, people run out of the store. If you have cash, remember, conviction, courage, and cash. So I always like cash. Now, gold is probably better than cash in a recession. So you probably want a little gold more than cash. And I think Bitcoin, digital gold, even better. Got it. Uh, Mark, thanks so much. Thank you, everyone, for watching. Uh, have a great weekend. Thanks. Bye.